1: everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Full Line. I'm here in Zoom land with Matt Offenbacher. It feels weird not being in the studio, Matt. I'm stumbling on my words if you can't tell.
0: Well, it is. I mean, the studio is such a pristine place to record. And then you go back behind your desk and a different kind of microphone
1: and all that. And it feels different. It feels off. Yeah, right. But the show must go on, as they say. And thank goodness for technology because we're able to do this. And you're not even in Houston. You're in the beautiful city of Midlantis. How's that going? I
0: mean, it's... Raining and kind of surprising. It was basically the crummy weather in Houston followed me to Midland, and I didn't know it could rain four
1: days in a row in Midland. I agree. I was there last week, and it was the first time I'd ever been to Midland, and it was raining. Leaving Houston, it was like 75, and then I got to Midland like late after. It was like 430, and it was like 40-some degrees, raining. Like, where am I? Definitely odd, a little different, but they need it more than anybody. Yeah. Real quick, Matt, you're there. And I know I've brought this up, but anytime you do something important, I like to highlight it. You were there doing a little, I guess, seminar. I'll let you explain it. I think it's pretty neat. Uh, We continue to educate our customers, our folks. What were you teaching there today or yesterday? I mean, basically just the fundamentals
0: of lubricants and lubricant chemistry. I feel like there's a lot of lubricant products out there. And so just understanding what to look for, how you test them for compatibility. A lot of things we cover on the podcast, but you get in front of everybody and do it live so they can have a Q&A. And
1: it's just another way to interact because not everybody interacts the same way. Yeah. No, that's awesome, man. Well, appreciate you heading over there and glad we could connect today. And so speaking of products, I know we've touched on LCM before, but it's something and like we talked about before even recording, it's, it's always a topic of conversation no matter what silver bullet any company claims they have, the reality is we are going to lose mud downhole to the formation. And a lot of times it's, or it has been in the past, is like, you've got the company representative wants to do one thing. You've got the mud company suggesting one thing. And then you've got the directional company saying you can't do anything, Mm -hmm. right? It's like, well, how do you then pick the right product for what we're experiencing? And so I thought it'd be cool to talk about Sort of identifying, like characterizing what type of losses you have. How do you pick, or how do you go through through a system of a process to identify which product fits best for what you're experiencing? And and I think it's a good conversation. I know we've touched on it, but I think it's worth refreshing everyone's memories. What do you think? Yeah, like we said, this never gets old.
0: We'll be having these conversations well into the future. So let's just do a fresh episode of it, and hopefully, they continue to get better. Go back and listen to the old ones. Hopefully, they're useful. But hopefully, this is the best of the best.
1: Right. And if we contradict ourselves, what's correct is the most recent episode. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) The rock has changed since then. Yeah. (laughs) I can't see that happening. But again, it's something that we're always talking about. And it's part of the world we live in. And the reason we pump LCM is typically, and most always when we're losing circulation, I think that's a good place to start is, is how would you characterize or differentiate the different types of losses? Because that's, I think the first part is like. How much are we losing? Where are we losing? And those types of questions. So Matt, again, what are the different types of losses I guess we can experience?
0: I think we start by characterizing it by loss rate. And the reason that we tend to want to do this is, I mean, you just think about it. I can deal with losing a little bit of mud, you know, a few barrels an hour. If I'm losing all of it at once, I don't have a hydrostatic column. And that's like a totally different behavior. And so we try and capture the high, the low and everything in between. I mean, these ranges vary, but your minor, what we would call seepage losses are usually the 10 to 20 barrels an hour range. And then we call it partial and partial, you start seeing less fluid is coming back relative to the fluid you pump down whole. Like it's a lot more apparent somewhere between 20 and hundred barrels. And then severe is above that. So we say severe is a total, nothing's coming back. Although if you're losing at 200 barrels an hour, you're probably not even coming back either. So, seepage is generally something I deal with. Partial, I probably need to do something about it, but the well's probably not at risk. And then you get to that severe total and yeah, the well's at risk. Like this is a very serious situation. And so, you'll break it down by those rates as far as my response and likely means by which I'm losing. But sometimes it might be that you're drilling ahead and you drill into nothing, aka something avoid space like a cavern or a vug or a fracture or permeable zone. And so you start losing and that's going to be at the bit. The other thing we do quite often is when we're drilling and we have a high ECD, we break down the formation and that's an induced fracture. That might not actually happen at the bit. That might happen further up the hole, maybe closer to the shoe where the formation is potentially the weakest. You may have drilled a certain ways out and lo and behold, you're losing way up above where where you're actually drilling at the time. Other times you're losing because you immediately cut into something that's drinking all your fluid. So those things are worth
1: taking into account. Right. I mean, we've established, let's assume we're humping along there and you've established your loss rate. You kind of know perhaps whether it's induced or perhaps we've drilled into something that's a void. How important is formation type? Like, is that something we should be considering when we're making the LCM selection?
0: Yeah. I mean, it can make a pretty big difference on, hey, let's say we drilled into something that's really permeable or a fracture network. It might be helpful because you're like, look, maybe I can seed a matrix of materials across those openings. Or it's like, no, I need to squeeze. Like this is a big fracture. There's a big void space or there's something else. So your treatment method might be different. And it can be helpful if the mud logger can tell you like, hey, we just drilled into a thing or what have you. Those are good conversations to have in really serious situations. You might even try and run a temperature log or something that would tell you the exact spot of losses. But other times it's like the mud logger can tell you, well, we just drilled through this and we know it's really weak. Okay. Well, let me start with my strategy that we drilled through a carbonate. Let's start with a strategy to deal with fractures or I would say
1: it really narrows down your treatment methods. Yeah. Yeah. We've established the rate. We figured out the loss type. We figured out what type of formation we're losing to, then next, I think you start looking at the different types of LCM and there's sort of categories within that space, Matt. So go ahead and explain the three different major types of LCM.
0: The stuff that's kind of big, like fibers and flakes. So this can be shredded agricultural waste. It can cedar fiber, shredded paper. You can find a lot of different, more like fibrous and flake type material. That's one category. And then you get into more granular things like your nut plug and your graphite, those kinds of things that typically are actually more like have an aspect ratio more that's closer to a sphere. And so those things are designed to sort of pack together as opposed to sort of like mat out. And then you would get into like squeezes or sediment materials as more of a third type of category. And these are things that you would pump and hopefully they all stick to each other, defluidize, do whatever to actually form a plug or a seal against a loss zone they sort of become your new wellbore in a way, right? A little piece of it, if you will.
1: Right. And all of these, they come in different sizes. And for folks out there, they've probably heard fine, medium, and coarse, but that is so vague. I don't even like to even consider that when suggesting something, and, you know, especially to talking to directional folks who are like, oh yeah, you can pump something medium and then no fault of their own. That's probably what someone told them. But the reality is you really want to look at your distribution, also known as your particle size distribution. And so, Matt, could you help sort of explain the different sizing of LCMs? Yeah. So a
0: lot of products are labeled by their D50 or what D50 is 50% of the particles are a certain micron size or smaller. And a lot of them will list the D10, which is 10% is a certain size or smaller. And then the D90 is this many microns or 90% or this many microns are smaller so a lot of our nomenclature focuses on that sort of middle 50%, but with a lot of blended loss circulation material, that might not tell you the whole story. If your D50 is 250, 300 microns, you're talking about big material. If it's 2, 5, 10, you're talking about something that's probably mostly really fine. And when you're trying to seal a certain size opening, if you have any idea of how wide it is or how big it is, it can tell you where to look or where to start because really fine materials probably won't seal really
1: large openings, right? Right. Beyond the sizing, let's talk a little bit about loss circulation theory, because there's something that we've talked and you've gotten your notes there is the pyramid, which to be honest, I'm not very familiar with that. I probably am, but I just don't know it. But can you go ahead and describe that? Well, it's always stuck in my head and it's been the sort of graphic
0: over the years to illustrate well more strengthening. And the idea is at the base of the pyramid, you look at your drilling practices, Right. I'm going to adjust my flow rate. I'm going to optimize my hydraulics. I'm going to do all of these other things first to prevent losses. The second thing I'm going to do, so you're moving up the pyramid. The next thing you'll do is you'll look at your fluid selection. And that might be, do I select a fluid that is less loss prone, you know, water-based mud, cheaper generally, and maybe less loss prone or MMH, which we've talked about before. Maybe that's good for you, but altering your fluid in accordance with what you're drilling through to prevent losses. And then while we're strengthening, which we've talked about in other episodes where I actually try and enhance the formation strength through specifically sized materials. And then the very last thing at the very tip top of the pyramid. So the very last smallest thing you do is you treat the losses you cost. And the argument here is some losses are preventable. Many losses are actually. Think from the beginning of your drilling practices don't start with your plan of what loss regulation material am I going to add? Look at the whole drilling system. I think everybody wants to jump into, okay, what do I pump? And it's like, okay, well, let's look at the well board. Let's look at the situation. Let's look at the BHA. And then, based upon all those other factors, let's see if we can just avoid losses in the first place. And if we have to, we have a plan.
1: Yeah. And I can appreciate you bringing this up because so many times, and especially if it's early in the morning or just not a time where, I guess just after hours is it's like something's happening. All of a sudden someone calls, whether it's in the middle of the night, it's like, Hey, we're losing. What do you want to pump? And then right away, you're like, well, what can the tools handle? Okay. Let's put together XYZ product at X concentration and go from there. Which is funny because a lot of times it's already in the mud program, but a lot of times people forget that there is one or that they've read it, forget, and then all of a sudden have to call someone for the exact same thing that you're going to recommend. But it's oftentimes in a circumstance where there's a bit of, Urgency. Well, there's obviously a ton of urgency to get to an answer. But instead of just kind of taking a step back and then looking at the whole picture and kind of going through these questions to come up with the right solution, people automatically just want to go. It's like, what's on location? What can we pump and go? And I think to your point is if there was a bit more sort of thought into the whole system, and by system like everything that you've mentioned, like the drilling practices, what kind of well type, BHA, fluid. You oftentimes can make a better decision than just throwing spaghetti at the wall and hoping it sticks. You know, we write LCM decision trees and we're trying to provide sort of a broad
0: approach to what could be a very specific problem on the rig. And fighting losses sucks, right? Like you got to mix more mud, you got to mix more product. There's a lot of other things where it's like, what if we were able to thread the needle through some good engineering, some other things, and just avoid this altogether, or maybe even minimize the degree to which we sort of have to suffer through it if it's inevitable?
1: Yeah. I just wanted to reiterate that. This is another interesting topic of discussion, which is often debated, is how do you apply this? There's different methods. And I'd love for you to describe the different methods and have a conversation around that because that is something that, again, everyone has their thoughts as to which is better.
0: I mean, sweeps, I think when you're drilling through something that's slightly permeable, as you expose it, Material can mat out up against it, but this is going to be more likely higher up in the well bore. not always, but areas that are less consolidated, that sort of thing, where you want to kind of lock those up as soon as you're drilling through it. It's generally going to apply to your like seepage and partial loss scenarios where you're kind of losing a little bit, which means that the fractures or whatever you're into could probably be sealed up with more fibrous mixture, maybe fibrous and granular material. So you can pump those sweeps as sort of a preventative measure or as a like keep on sort of deal. But as your loss rates increase, I think your success rate is likely to go up if you spot a pill and try and cure those losses. But we had a question about this not too long ago. You know, a customer said, we were just sort of trying to say how difficult it is to set KPIs for MUD. And the argument was, look, your project has a required capital efficiency to it. You have an investment and you want dollars back which means you want to drill as fast as you can. But if you want your mud bill as low as you can, if I make the mud bill every priority in the world, we encounter losses. Well, what I want you to do is I want you to stop drilling. I want you to go in. I want you to log. I want you to provide a specific area where you're losing. We'll stop, we'll spot, we'll squeeze, we'll get that thing all cured up, and then we can drill ahead. And that might take an extra 12 or 16 hours, but my mud bill will be lower. Would you rather do that? Or would you rather get 12 to 16 hours of drilling while you lose a few barrels of mud an hour? which one is more efficient with your capital. And sometimes at some point, it's worth spending more money or tolerating things in order to protect your overall investment or maximize the return on your investment, which is your spread rate, the amount of time it takes to drill and get that rig off location. Sweeps are a convenient way to keep on keeping on without having to stop and spot a treatment and that sort of thing. I think a lot of times what you're going to find on balance is we'll do sweeps as long as it's doing something. And then when losses are sort of becoming troublesome, it's time to say, okay, we're going to spot a pill. This has gotten to the point where it's going to affect our operations. We need to do something. That's not a perfect line to draw out, but I think it's something that you need to keep in mind is just because you're losing a little bit of mud, it needs to be enough that it affects the overall performance of the rig to add rig time to address it.
1: Yeah. Again, that's always a judgment call and a call that the operators will make. But I think it's important to note that sometimes you have to slow down to speed up which in drilling is often frowned upon. But again, I've been in a situation like that where allowing a pill to soak for a matter of hours has actually been way more beneficial than just like trying to keep drilling, keep pumping sweeps, keep adding things that may or may not be helping. So it's something that really needs to be considered when you're taking losses or if they start to become problematic, which brings me to my next point. And I kind of made a comment around it, but with directional, because ultimately you can't heal if you can't pump anything. And with our magical directional drilling tools that are downhole, there's a lot of components that the LCM has to pass through. And so, Matt, talk a little bit about delivery methods, especially when it comes to and why it sort of controls what we can and can't pump.
0: Well, anytime there's especially these fancy rotary steerable tools or even other measurement tools, there's a risk that, you know, like the MWD, if you plug it and you don't know where you are, you probably need to get another one in the hole your attempt to cure losses could ultimately result in a trip and all kinds of other problems if your LCM treatment plugs the equipment. And so there's a certain tolerance and we have these arguments all the time, arguments, I'm still going to call it that, but what's approved to go through the tool? Well, generally nothing that we as mud engineers want to pump. Everything is too dangerous. Somebody's got to assume a certain amount of risk. The directional company doesn't want They don't want to say yes to something and then receive the blame for a tool plugging. We don't want to receive the blame for plugging a tool by pumping something that is not acceptable. But if everybody gets their way, nobody gets anything done. There's sort of a negotiation on what is seemingly acceptable. And through a tool, you need to have that conversation. For squeezes and other things, open-ended, that means coming out of the hole. That's a serious situation anyways, but coming out of the hole And going in open-ended or where you have a lot of flow area where you're not going to plug anything might be a safer and wiser choice, especially for squeezes and other things that want to defluidize in small spaces. That's what they're designed to do. If you expect it a lot, I think bypass subs, I wish we saw them a little more often. There's ball activated type subs where you can drop it, you bypass fluid into the annulus instead of going through the drilling assembly. So material can't plug off. You can pump whatever you want. And then you can close it back and go back to drilling after you've cured the losses. So there are other options, but they add cost or complexity as opposed to just using the tools. But I will emphasize on any of these risks of plugging events, we've talked and we found that when we try and track the history of tool failures, one big factor that has to be kept into account is thorough mixing. We encourage the mud engineers, you can't be by the hopper all day, but making sure everybody on the rig crew who has to cut a sack knows to make sure everything is blended really thoroughly, checking before anything gets pumped, I think is a great way to avoid tool failures because we have materials we know work fine with certain tools. Yeah. and if all of a sudden they don't, I don't think it's the material. I think maybe it was how it was handled,
1: yeah, and we're certainly not in a place yet where everything is automated and one hundred percent consistent because if that was the case, then you know a lot of that human error could be taken out of it. And a lot of times it's just especially rig hands, if they're being asked to do multiple things at once. and so, they may have not been educated on the importance of thorough mixing or hey you can't just cut this open and dump it like you really need to give it at least a couple minutes per sack or whatever that looks like and then nowadays rigs are equipped with good hopper systems hopefully good circulating systems and agitators that work and aren't half rusted off but the reality is like and i see this more when rig count is low a lot of times rigs are staffed with folks who have a better understanding of how to do things the right way. And then as rig count increases, efficiencies are still there. But then once you kind of reach a point where it's like, we just need people to be able to be on the rig site who don't have the experience, that's when a lot of these things tend to happen because you're just busy and the personnel are less experienced. And so the human factor still plays a huge role in the effectiveness of pumping whatever it is products or lcm regular treatments because last thing you want to do is and especially if you're treating something just a regular treatment you want these humps and properties same thing goes with lcm you don't want to just slam it in there and pump it down whole but again the mixing piece i think over time has gotten better just by way of equipment but it's still not perfect and it's something that we really still need to pay attention to yes did you have anything else? I was curious, uh, your thoughts on sort of the different intervals, anything else on the delivery stuff? No, I think you've said
0: it pretty well. There's still human factors with a lot of this stuff. And we tend to make assumptions that it's a mechanical issue. And like you said, I think the hardest part when you go through that transition is you expect experience. You get used to somebody with experience and then you get new people and you
1: forget what they don't know. The way they learn is by plugging tools. <laughs> yeah. You know, we've all been there. It sucks. Talk about the different intervals. Can you basically apply the same products and same methods, whether you're drilling surface intermediate production, or do you really have to understand which interval you're in and have maybe different approaches for each? I think you do have to break it down.
0: And this goes back to knowing what you're drilling through, but just think about overburden, right? The more rock on top of rock, the stronger the rock you have. And so when you're drilling surface, you've got sort of unconsolidated formations. They might be more permeable. Up there, fibers and flakes and blended with a couple of calcarb or whatever can be quite effective. But the further you go down where you don't have these loose formations that you're sort of matting up against, you've either got hard rock that is fractured or failing, or it's got a very established matrix. There, you're going to want to pack off the material into that matrix or across that fracture mouth. When you go to intermediate, you're going to start moving more towards granular materials to achieve some of that packing because a lot of the fibers don't have that strength. So you start shifting your ratio more and more over to kind of the granular stuff. And when you get to the production section, or when you get pretty deep, most likely those are going to be your go-tos. You'll be mostly away from fibers. And then the only other time you might see it is when you have like a vug or a fracture where you need something to defluidize rapidly. Some of those mixes I've seen will have some fibers in them, not many, but that's a squeeze treatment, which is a little different than trying to seal across the formation because now you're trying to pack some stuff into a void space. But there should be an evolution. And this is one of the things that I sort of, let's say, have a... I see... Let's go with Oklahoma. Everybody loves cedar fiber in Oklahoma, I guess because it's so cheap. But there's a tendency to want to use it for every loss scenario. It works well, but when you get further down, like it's probably not going to work. near Your odds of it working on surface are much better... But the deeper you go, the less likely it will actually work. And granted, the type of loss circulation and some of the weird geology they have, I think it's easy to pass it off as oh man, another weird well or but it's like you maybe didn't give yourself the best chance at curing those losses by committing to just one material all the way down,
1: yeah. I just got kind of giggle. I've had the pleasure of working in Oklahoma when I first started managing accounts there, shoot almost ten years ago now. It was like the only LCM we'd ever use a lot of times. And it was like, and then it came in bulk too. So it was just like, the more, the better. And the odd thing is, is it at the right treatment levels, it actually worked like gangbusters. Like it does work. Now, does it work for everything? No, but it is sort of a comical example of what sort of the one, one size fits all solution. But to your point, it goes back to knowing what you're drilling, knowing historically, if you're losing, where you're losing and different formations in different Types of losses require different types of, of material. And not to say there isn't a one-size-fits-all solution, because I guess in some cases you could say, okay, this product works well in all of them. But if you can have a bit more of an engineered approach, assuming you have the information you need to make those types of decisions, it's oftentimes a lot more effective. And while you may spend a little more looking at it on paper, the time you've saved in your ability to perhaps do different things with your fluid, like i.e. increased density... There may be a band-aid approach, but if you do it properly, maybe you have to increase mud weight. And instead of only being able to go up two tenths, well, now you can maybe go up half a pound because you've actually sealed it more effectively than just patching some random product on the side of your well wellbore, which then ultimately can result in a bunch of other issues. And so you don't always have all the information you need to make that decision, but go the extra mile to try and find it out and then give yourself an engineered approach. And I think it's certainly a win-win.
0: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like, I think the example of, oh, well, if we use a ton of cedar fiber, like it works, like, right, but you're not going to seal that thing up as effectively lower down in formation. It's got to pack through a bunch of void spaces between fibers. You risk getting stuck. You add other potential risks to it where it might work, but it might not be the most efficient in the same way that I would be led to believe that if you used a squeeze material, you could probably use it to treat losses under almost any circumstance. I just can't promise you won't get stuck. There's a lot of these that, yes, they'll work eventually or they'll work. But if you can figure out what works in the right situation and be wise about it from an efficiency perspective, you'll gain a lot more than trying to kill everything with a sledgehammer from the smallest to the biggest. Well, if you
1: hit it hard enough, it'll work, Matt. I mean, that's the oil field, right? (laughs) Biggest hammers there are. Right. It's a good point. And again, it's an interesting conversation, one that we have at least once a day. That's really all I had, Matt. And and I encourage the listeners, if you have something to add, I mean, we could have broken a lot of these sort of topics down into their own individual episodes, but I think it's a good, perhaps for us, something to do in the future, but just refreshing our memories and the audience memories of how we approach these things. Don't get complacent. Don't have a recipe that works in one area and just assume it's going to work in another to the point of just doing a little bit of extra work and doing your homework, understanding what you're drilling talking some things through, I had, you know, actually kind of on that note, we, uh, perfect example, working for a customer down in South Texas for so long, we had used a certain product at a certain concentration. It was working and the drilling engineer and kudos to him said, what if we look dive deeper into this further? And so he got with his, I think his reservoir team to actually get like the poor throat size of the rock that we were trying to each time seal up with a given Product and we actually took one product and then just adjusted the sizing a little bit based off the options we had. We actually ended up using a little less and it was a little more cost effective. And the success rate we've had since then has been better than it was before we applied this product. And it took time and effort. And his geo team was like, Oh, you're actually asking us for information and advice, you know? Like, so we got key stakeholders involved, we tweaked the product. The economics worked out in our favor and the performance worked out in theirs. And again, it was a win-win, but did we have to? No, we could have just kept doing what we're doing. But again, it's a testament to like pushing the limits and there's always a better or more effective way of doing something. And it was just a cool example. It was something that we kind of were like, really, you want to go that deep into this? Like what we're doing is working and which was kind of the response from several stakeholders. And lo and behold, it turned out to be good. You just never know. It's just always stay curious. (laughs) I mean, what's awesome about that
0: is a lot of those subsurface people are thrilled when somebody actually asks them those questions, like right. they get ignored a lot. So you get this enthusiastic participation and things that you are like, oh, this is just how this drills all of a sudden become, wow, what if we dare to be different Right, and like fundamentally address what the real issue is? And then you get to move on to the next
1: thing. Good stuff. Well, if anyone else has any cool stories or just anything they'd like to add to the conversation, please do. Some of our best episodes come from those out there listening that just ask questions and who remain curious. who will reach out. You can connect with us on LinkedIn. Make sure you connect with the AES Fluids page. We're continuously putting out great content, information, a lot of cool things that we're doing on the technology front. And then too, is just kind of getting a glimpse of how we are as a culture and what we do internally for our people, for our customers. And for the community. And so I encourage you to connect with us on there. Or if you'd like to reach us on email, you can reach us at the Flowline Podcast at AESfluids.com. Matt, that's it for now. I'm out of breath, man. You got anything? No, everybody take care. Awesome. Be safe, everyone. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of the Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.